Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hi, guys. Welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny with Kristen and Jen. This is Kristen. And hey, Jen. Hi. Hi, Kristen. How are you? My five-year-old's starting... Her first day of kindergarten tomorrow. Yay. Oh, that's so exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. That's big kid school. Big kid school. I'm excited oh, for that's her. That's awesome. She's going to love it. Kindergarten's mm-hmm. so much fun. Yeah. She's excited to learn to read and she loves numbers. And so we'll see. I think she's going to really enjoy math, it. Just like her mommy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Yeah. For those of you who are listening, I'm really glad that this is an auditory only podcast. Although if you're on YouTube, this is visual too. But I'm really glad that this is not like. <laughs> a full sensory experience because I smell so bad right now. I'm totally unwashed. I haven't slept. I haven't showered. Why haven't you slept? Oh my God. Okay. So last night there was a huge thunderstorm. First Mm. of all, let me back up. A week ago, there was this horrible thing where this house in Mooresville, which is a town up by the lake north of us, exploded. How? I had, we have gas lanterns all around our house. It was probably from a gas leak. And I had been saying for like a year that I smelled gas outside by the garage. Mm. And I was, no pun intended, being gaslighted by everyone who was like, there's no gas. I don't smell gas. Mm -hmm. You're the only one, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So after that happened, I called Piedmont and I was like, get out here, bring the gas sniffer. And sure enough, there was a gas leak. So I was Mm -hmm. like, ha ha. Well, last night at 1230 AM, I was awoken from a deep state of slumber by the smell of gas. So think about how strong it had to be to wake me up. Okay, so I leap out of bed. I'm like, get the kids. We got to flee the house. I'm running all over the kitchen trying to find the smell. Somehow by the time I got back to the bedroom, it had dissipated. Hmm. (laughs) And so my husband was like, you're totally crazy. Like, I have night terrors, full disclosure. So Mm -hmm. I'm usually – I leap out of the bed screaming about something every other night anyways. Mm -hmm. So – but this is the first time it's ever been about a scent. In hindsight, now what I think probably happened was there was a thunderstorm and the dog was really scared. And I think she came into our room and probably just farted. (laughs) But So at at 1 a.m., I had Piedmont Natural Gas out here with gas sniffers, running pressure tests on our gas lines, climbing up in the attic, going in the crawl space, the whole thing. I had to unbolt one of our shutters from the wall in order to get to the Dante valve back there. I mean, anyway, so there was nothing. And now the gas lighting that is going to happen in our family from now on. I'm going to be the boy who cried wolf, even though I was mm-hmm. right about it a week you're ago. You're right. Oh, and man. And then, of course, in my like 
half asleep state. I had a chimney inspection because I still have my day job as a real estate agent. I had a chimney inspection at a house that I have under contract this morning. But instead of sending my chimney inspector to that house, I sent him to my house. So now I have all these beautiful pictures of my chimney cap that helped no one while I was standing at this house for like an hour during which I had hoped to be showering during that time. So now you have smelly, unwashed me on this podcast. So um, just be grateful that the internet hasn't found a way to share my glorious scent with, uh, with our listeners. Anyways, um, enough about my ridiculous evening and morning. Guys, for those of you who caught our last episode with Professor Harry Mamaisky, we got so many questions from everyone after that episode, and we have another really dense interview for you coming up. Mm-hmm. So we figured the best way to do this would be like a lecture precept mode. Yeah. Like, hey, we just had the really <laughs> dense material. Now let's do a Q&A to address some of the questions that we got after that episode. And for those of you who listened to last week's episode or listened to any of our episodes and you're like, Oh, wow. That was pretty intense. Some of this stuff was over my head. Just remember, some of this stuff is over our heads as well. And Mm -hmm. we're learning right along with you. We got some really great listener questions. We thought it would be helpful to break those down in a little Q&A episode today because we want to make sure that you guys are feeling really good about these concepts before we keep going deeper. I think it also gives us a chance to get into some of the concepts that are pretty boring if you just sit there and we're like, let's talk about blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, but now it's more fun because there's actually in response to a question. It's also just, I think it's it's a fun way for you, you and me, Jen, to actually catch up and I love and the chat. you and me episodes. Yeah. Now that I've told you how smelly I am. Um, so Kristen, I want you to tackle this first question that we got. And for those of you who don't follow mm-hmm. us on social media, Kristen has recently released a string of video talking about the treasury stock method, which mm-hmm. is something that I've been so excited to learn about. And this question was a follow-up to one of the videos that you yeah. put out about that, right? Yeah. So actually, I want to rewind a little bit because, again, like, why do you actually care about treasury stock method? So what is if the we treasury back stock up, method? Yeah. I, I actually want to sort of frame this because you can use treasury stock method for a few different reasons. And the reason that someone might use it in the 10K and a company's financials is actually different from how I was using it because I was using it to explain how do we calculate the value of equity for a company? And Mm -hmm. so this speaks to valuation 101. And at a high level, we've had a number of conversations about this concept of equity value. So the equity value, just a recap, is what is the value of the equity in a business? And I always have used the analogy of if you buy a house for a million dollars, you're going to probably get some kind of financing, right? You're going to get a mortgage, you're going to get some debt. So you would Mm -hmm. only put in, say, $200,000 as your down payment. That is your equity in the home. Mm -hmm. And it's the same idea with equity in a company. And you are someone who's like watching NVIDIA and like their earnings releases and everything, or you Uh were smart and bought into NVIDIA, you're buying into their equity, right? You're buying into a fractional portion of that equity value. What I was trying to do is say, great, you're buying an NVIDIA share. Well, how much is all of their equity worth? And so when you want to calculate the value of a company's all of their equity, it seems simple, right? You take the share price times the number of shares, right? You just gross it up by how many shares there are out there that people can buy. But it's not that simple. like arithmetic. Yeah, exactly. But it's actually not that simple because companies will often 
use what's called stock-based compensation, this way of awarding or compensating their employees where they actually give them ownership, right? They want to incentivize employees to make the company do well. So they will give them options, restricted stock, restricted stock units. And again, I'm not going to get into all the specifics of those other ones, but the one in particular that I want to focus on is options, because this is something that you see all over the place. And most companies, they will give options. And so an option is just you have the right to buy into a company's equity for some price, exercise or strike price. If the strike price is below where the company shares are trading in the open market, you can buy something right as like a discount and then go sell it and you can make some money. And so the idea is that if you're trying to calculate what is the value of a company's equity, you not only want to include the shares that are outstanding, but all of those almost like promised shares that have been given to employees. There are other types of dilutive securities. So there's warrants and converts. And so I'm not going to get into that in a ton of detail either, but I just want to make the point that there are these other shares that you want to incorporate. And what's kind of crazy is that if you were to go and look up on like Google Finance and say like, well, what is the market value of NVIDIA? That market value of the equity per Google Finance does not include those options. However, sophisticated investors, right, like the asset managers, the hedge funds, like they are because they know that those shares are diluting all of those existing shareholders. And by the way, if you're not capturing those, then now you think that a company's equity is actually cheaper than it really is. So it's really important to include those. You can go in a company's filings, right, in their 10K. And actually, this was the actual question. I've like gotten this far and I haven't even asked the question. Companies actually have to report the effect of their dilution of those options in their filings. And so companies will calculate the diluted shares in those filings. And so someone asked the question, because I walked through all this in a video, and they said, well, why can't you just go to the 10K and pull the diluted weighted average shares outstanding and use that? And there's actually a couple of reasons why. So what the accountants are doing in the 10K, they're calculating diluted shares for the purpose of calculating something called diluted earnings per share. So you want to know as an investor, how much or what is your claim on the earnings, on the net income? Mm-hmm. So you take all the net income that a company generated over, say, like an entire year, and you divide it by all the shares. So you know my earnings per share is, I'm making up a number, $2 per share. Okay. So when you're doing it for the purposes of the accounting, because you're looking at the net income, which is generated over a time period, you want to calculate the diluted share count over that same time period. Mm -hmm. So it is the weighted average share count over a time period. It is not the share count today. So So it's a three-dimensional moving target, basically. Yeah. A, there is like a time gap because by the way, also when a company reports their earnings, usually like there's their fiscal year end, call it December 31st, 2022 or 2023 there is usually a little bit of a time lag between when they actually file their 10K or their Mm -hmm. 10Q. And so they're going to get the most up-to-date number as they can. So there's a a little bit of a time lapse. And there's also that weighted average component. So the numbers that are in there are stale. They're also the average, not the actual. And by the way, another thing is that if you're calculating the diluted shares today, this whole treasury stock method, what you do is so if you have an option, you have all these employees, they have options. And actually, I use my Pinterest example. So you have option holders. Pinterest is trading at $26. That's the share price. You could go buy or sell shares in the open market for call $26. Well, you as an option holder can buy shares for $14. And so the way that the accountants and then also Sorry, valuation experts. Back. So, mm-hmm. so for people who haven't seen your video, average strike price of the outstanding options was $14. <laughs> 
Yes. So sorry. So let me back up. So in the video that we did on social media, I use Pinterest because I always find it more interesting to use real companies. And so in this example, I think at the time, Pinterest was trading around $26 per share. That share price has probably changed since. And the weighted average strike price, meaning all of the options that were outstanding, because there's, by the way, there's lots of them. The weighted average strike was $14. Now, in a perfect world, we would know each and every single individual strike. Right. We don't know that. We can only get what they tell us. And in their filing, they tell us that it's $14 for the weighted average of all those shares. So what Treasury Stock Method basically says is you assume that every single option holder whose option is in the money, meaning it would make sense for them to pay $14 to sell something for a 26 that they exercise today. But if you think about it, if an option holder is exercising. What do they need to do? They actually have to buy that share. They're buying at a discount, but they still have to pay the company cash. So the company would get $14 for every single option that is exercised. And the company now has $14 times however many options there are that they can now go and play with. And so the assumption that is made under this treasury stock method, by the way, this is both in the accounting, like under US GAAP, under international financial reporting standards, and then how the valuation people do it. You assume that the company takes that cash, the proceeds from those options and buys back shares. At what price? Well, at the share price it is today. So Mm -hmm. as you have the company's share price changing, A, you could have option tranches that are in 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 the money that go out of the money. You could have Mm -hmm. tranches that become in the money, right, as the share price changes. And also, so number two, the buyback price is also going to change. So how many Mm -hmm. shares you buy back literally changes every single day because the share price changes daily. So that is why you have to go through and do this calculation every time, or you have a running calculation, the share price changes every day, and you can't just say, hey, I'm going to go use the numbers that are in the 10K. So just to recap, because A, the numbers that are in the 10K are stale. They are based on usually the weighted average share price over the time period you're looking at. We want to know how many shares there are as up to date as possible, and based on the share price with the buyback that is trading at today. Let me pause and see if there's, Jen, if you have any questions. No, that makes so much sense. And one thing I want to clarify too is critical to this assumption is that in order to settle those options, there is the assumption that the employees are actually going to take delivery of that stock rather than a cash settled option, which is what you will see. And they do. And actually, so sorry, this is something I want to also make a point at because someone also commented on one of these videos and said, well, how can you know how many options there are? Look at like a Tesla. There's probably tons of options. There's a difference between the options that companies are giving to employees as part of stock-based compensation and options that you can buy and trade on the open market. Like Jen and I could, in the secondary market, Jen and I, we could make a bet on like what's going to happen to Pinterest share price. And it has no effect on what Pinterest is doing with their shares. These shares are actually given to Pinterest employees. They now are going to get paid dividends. They are going to have voting rights. Like they are getting actual shares. This is not like a cash delivery thing. This is, they are getting shares because they want their employees to become owners in this company. Mm -hmm. They want them to have ownership. So it doesn't really make sense to be like, hey, now you have this cash-based option. And there's also tax incentives with giving out those options. So for a lot of reasons, it probably would not make sense to do a cash award. I guess in theory, there is maybe a company that has done that someplace, but it's just not the norm. No, no, no. That makes total sense, but it might not be necessarily intuitive to someone coming from Mm -hmm. a regular options. Exactly. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. It's not bets that are made on the secondary market that are 
I guess they could affect the share price of a company because people can be hedging it and shorting stock and all that kind of fun stuff. But this is actually like they issue shares. There's now more outstanding. So that was a really important point, Jen, because I think that especially people who are in like the sales and trading world, and even actually I did a sort of- In your personal account. In your personal account. And I actually used to have people, I would go to like a Wharton and I would have these really smart people who had just learned about options. And so I explained this to them. Like, show you how smart they yeah. are. And they're like, are these calls or puts? And I would laugh because I'm like, well, it would be kind of a stupid idea for a company to give an employee a put option because their incentive <laughs> is now to drive the share price into the ground. But it That's is exactly such an important right. thing because as you said, the way that people often think about option trading and all that kind of stuff, the nuances is so different from the corporate finance of we are raising capital and we are incentivizing employees. It's like the motivations are very different. So that's exactly right. such a such a great point. And actually, it's interesting for Pinterest because Pinterest, they have a loss. In other words, they're losing money over every quarter, every year. And so for Pinterest, if you look at their diluted shares in their 10K, mm-hmm. it's the same as the basic. And so you're like, well, wait a second, why is that? You just went through this whole thing and talk. Well, it's basic because if you have a loss, it looks better if they spread the loss over more people. Right. So there is this thing if options or any of these things are anti dilutive, meaning it like (laughs) reduces the dilution, you don't do it. So Uh Pinterest, their basic share or their basic EPS and their diluted EPS, it's the same. So their share price is 26. Uh You can buy shares for 16, but because they are their net income, right? So if you're looking at it from a, this is going back to are you the accountant or are you the valuation person? Uh So from an accounting standpoint, the earnings, right? The net income over the shares. If you have a hundred dollar loss spread over a hundred shareholders, that's a loss of $1 a share. Mm -hmm. But if you have a hundred dollars and then you include your options, you have now like 150. Mm -hmm. Now your loss looks less bad because you're using more shares. So it's anti-dilutive. So that's, what's kind of interesting is that in the Pinterest example, it's even more of a like, oh no, you don't use those options because they're anti-dilutive there. So like Uh the diluted share count in the 10K is not going to be the diluted shares you'd want to use for valuation. Like they're going to be totally different for a slightly different reason. Okay. That was a really good explanation. Um, I haven't used Pinterest since I think I made my like wedding planning vision board 10 years ago. So maybe that explains why they are, are why, they're, why they're struggling. <laughs> well, it's funny because I think their share price, let me look it up. I actually think it's like been going up, even though the market as a oh, whole has been going well, there you down. Go, guys. Pinterest. Hot tip from the Wall Street skinny. <laughs> Pinterest is the next. No, thing. actually they've gone up since I did my video. They're now at 2746. Oh, rock and roll. All you Pinterest option holders go uh, dance a little jig. <laughs> um, okay. So switching gears here, we're going to to circle back to the episode we did last week with Professor Harry Mamiski. And so we got a question from a listener who said that on that episode, he gave an example of an IG high yield CDX relative value. <laughs> All right. Who's There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yes. Can you explain what this is and how it works? Okay. So let's back up. Let's zoom way, way, way out. So we're going to break down a couple of these terms in details. But first, let's start with what is a relative value trade? Okay, so across asset classes, but particularly in fixed income, there's a type of investing called relative value investing. So you will have entire relative value hedge funds. To explain this simply, I'm actually going to use something totally outside of fixed income. Um, And I'm going to use companies because again, like Kristen said, sometimes it's cool to talk about things that we Mm -hmm. know in our everyday life versus talking about these really abstract concepts and then trying to apply them. Okay. So let's say I like coffee because we all know I need caffeine after the night I had last night. Okay. And fall is coming up and it's about to be pumpkin spiced 
latte season. Okay. My personal feelings about pumpkin spice lattes aside, I actually drink matcha these days, but that's neither here <laughs> nor there. All right. Let's say that as an investor, I think there's going to be a boon of like Instagram happy consumers who are all rushing to their nearest coffee shop to buy a pumpkin spice latte. Okay. And this is going to generate huge profits for coffee companies. But let's say I have a really strong view that this is going to benefit Starbucks way more than Dunkin' Donuts, okay? Starbucks has like the Instagram influencer cachet. It glamorized the drink in the first place. This is Starbucks's time to shine. I think every wannabe influencer is gonna like layer up in a scarf and a beanie and a vest and some knee-high boots and like grab their Starbucks pumpkin spice latte. Now, Dunkin' Donuts may benefit because a rising tide floats all boats, but I think Starbucks is going to outperform Dunkin' in this pumpkin spice <laughs> battle for riches. So I could buy Starbucks stock and sell beta weighted, meaning market vol equivalent Duncan stock so that in theory, I'm indifferent to an overall market move in either direction, but I'm going to benefit if Starbucks stock outperforms Dunkin' Donuts. Now, of course, the huge flaw with my plan when I came up with this example is that Dunkin' Donuts actually went private back in 2020. <laughs> but hopefully that helps you. I told you guys I wasn't an equities person, all right? Like hopefully it helps you think about the details, details. Value trade. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So now, now that we kind of understand the concept, let's take it back to fixed income where things get a little bit more abstract. We're going to express the same type of views in bonds. And in our case, specifically in corporate bonds, and then ultimately in their derivatives. Now, in a relative value trade, remember, we don't care if overall bond prices go up or down. We just care if one bond or one type of bonds outperforms another. So in the example with Harry, we talked about an IG versus high yield relative value trade. So what do these things even mean? Well, IG stands for investment grade, meaning corporate bonds that have a high credit rating where the borrower is very likely to repay their debt. Remember, mm -hmm. credit ratings are assigned by these rating agencies. They are third-party analysts who assign a grade to companies. An investment grade is anything above. It's BAA3 or triple B minus. And just for remember, fun, right? So it's B like Moody's. S&P, Fitch. Remember, Fitch just downgraded the yep. US recently. Yep. And so investment grade borrowers are lower risk borrowers. And because they are lower risk, those bonds typically have lower yields because investors don't demand as much risk premium to compensate them for the riskiness of investing their money with you. Now, high yields, what does that mean? Well, you may have heard the term junk bonds in the past. It's not a very nice word, okay? <laughs> but it's often applied to corporate bonds that are below that triple B minus rating. Those are bonds where the borrowers have much lower credit ratings. Maybe they have a ton of debt and they're super highly levered up. Maybe Pinterest is just their cash flow has fallen off a cliff for some reason. And we're looking at their future projections of their ability to repay their debt. And it's increasingly likely that they will not be able to pay back the money they've borrowed. Investors require a much higher yield to compensate them for that risk of agreeing to lend that company money. So now, Beyond the whole world of all these corporate bonds, all the really high quality corporate bonds and all the junk bonds that we were talking about, <laughs> we have a whole world of derivatives. And we've talked about derivatives before. Derivatives are instruments that typically aren't physical securities, but either replicate their cash flows or derive their value from the performance of other assets. And one of the derivatives that exists out there is called CDS, which stands for credit default swaps. 
And CDS was like a naughty word in the press Mm -hmm. back in the financial crisis of 2008. But these aren't inherently like crazy risky instruments. All a credit default swap is, it's an insurance policy. So if I buy any corporate bond, I'm exposed to the credit risk that that borrower won't repay their loan. If I buy CDS on that credit, I'm effectively offsetting some of that risk. I'm transferring it to the person who sold me the insurance policy embedded in that credit default swap. So for example, if I own JP Morgan CDS and JP Morgan defaults on its debt, I mean, aside from the fact that the entire US banking system is going to disintegrate, <laughs> I now have this Hence. nifty little insurance policy that's going to pay me out as my hedge. So the way that CDS trades, it is quoted as a spread that's typically measured in basis points per annum, meaning a fraction of a percent that you pay over the course of every single year. And what you're paying is that insurance premium as the buyer of CDS in exchange for protection in the risk of default. And in the CDS contracts themselves, there's all kinds of technical definitions of what actually constitute a default event. But the bottom line is that if the credit, meaning if that borrower gets riskier, the CDS spread is going to widen or increase. And that's going to reflect the higher premium required by someone who's going to be willing to insure against that credit's risk of default. Mm-hmm. Are we still with me? Yes. Okay, cool. So we're still with me. Mm-hmm. All right. So what Harry actually said on our podcast is that he wanted to express the view that he thought high yield was going to outperform IG. So there's a number of different ways that he could express this. Again, let's go back to our Duncan versus Starbucks example, and then we took it to our single name corporate bonds. He could express the view by buying and selling individual corporate bonds themselves, but that can get really complicated. Let's think about it. He's got to figure out which individual corporate bonds he's going to buy. He's going to have to deal with all the idiosyncrasies of those specific corporate bonds. Then he's got to deal with the duration component of those underlying bonds. He's got to be tying up balance sheet. He's got to deal with liquidity, some single name corporates. One company might have billions and billions of dollars worth of debt. Others might only have a couple hundred million and you're going to enter into liquidity issues. Just as a reminder, the duration risk means if you buy a bond that's like 10 years, the value of that bond can go down. You're going to be exposed to overall fluctuation in the value of the underlying rate component of that bond that has nothing to do with the credit risk of that corporation. So great point. Anyways, there's a whole number of different issues that you would deal with if you just tried to express this view in single name corporate bonds that would detract from just kind of the pure expression of the fact that I think, generally speaking, investment grade is going to underperform all of the world of high yield. So similar to buying and selling single-name corporate bonds, Harry could buy and sell a bunch of single-name CDS, but you're going to have similar problems. You don't have the same balance sheet problems that you have if you want to wear the risk of the actual bonds. Just to reinforce when you say balance sheet, we're saying if you want to buy that bond, you're paying whatever, $100 for the par of the bond, you can do it in a much less yeah, capital exactly. intensive way. You're going to have way. to come up with the cash with the, yes. either by having $100 million lying around or you're going to have to finance that in the repo market. Yes. And to isolate the credit component of it, you're going to have to sell treasuries against it to isolate <laughs> that credit component. So it's all of a sudden, now you've got four legs to your trade. It's very complex. But even with just the derivative form, even just single name CDS, you still have too much exposure to the idiosyncrasies of individual names mm-hmm. versus the market sector as a whole. And you're still going to have liquidity concerns. It's not for the faint of heart. But good news, guys, if this wasn't already (laughs) complex enough, okay, we can take all of our CDS derivatives and create a second order derivative, which is an entire basket of CDS 
characterized by the riskiness of the underlying credits. And then trade that basket as an index. And we call that index CDX. Okay, it's so like SPX for Harry the S&P. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. You add X to something. And, and it know, becomes an index. <laughs> index, exactly. Although, I don't know, um, Elon Musk might steal that X. You never oh, know. Oh, gosh, I know, yeah. Got to get a bad okay. KK joke in there at some point. So, CDX. <laughs> we have a CDX. We have one index for investment grade and one for high yield. And they consist of the CDS on... I don't know, to be honest, but I think it's like 125 names or something like that. And those names move in and out of the index as they get upgraded or downgraded. There's other indices, by the way. There's something called HVOL, which stands for high volatility. Um, There's EM, which stands for emerging markets. There's XO, which stands for crossover. It's like a whole alphabet soup in fixed income. But we're just going to stick with high yield and investment grade for now. And so by creating this giant kind of like smoothed out and liquid index of credit default swaps on an entire category of corporate bonds. I know I've gone up in degree in mental complexity, but I've dramatically simplified my ability to express this relative value view in the purest way. I don't have to worry about which individual name or like weird liquidity issues. I can just express this like very 10,000 foot view that high yield as an asset class is going to outperform investment grade. So- How are we actually going to do this, right? Remember, this is a derivative. So I don't have to like go out and physically buy or sell things I'm entering into contracts. To express this particular view, I would enter into a sell protection trade on the high yield CDX and a buy protection trade in investment grade. And why am I saying sell protection, buy protection instead of just buying or selling the index? Well, (laughs) because just to make things even more complex than they already are, these two indices are quoted in totally different ways. IG CDX is quoted as a spread, just like single name CDS, whereas high yield is quoted as a dollar price on the index itself. I just want to reinforce what that means. So remember, when we say a spread, you're saying, what is the spread over? And I'm assuming it's treasuries. I mean, the the bottom line is that, remember, all corporate bonds trade as a spread to some risk-free rate. It could be LIBOR, SOFR, well, now it's SOFR. Exactly. U.S. Treasuries. It could be U.S. Treasuries. It could be the prime rate. It could be anything. So all borrowers who are not the U.S. government trade at some spread to something. So in derivative form in CDS and CDX, we've isolated that spread without underlying cash component. We are talking about the corporate bonds that trade in cash world that you hold on your balance sheet and buy and sell as physical securities. That spread is actually added to something. It doesn't exist out there in the ether as this little individual entity. No, absolutely. That's a great point. Okay. So back to how our indices are quoted. IG is quoted as a spread, just like single name CDS, basis points per annum that you are paying an insurance premium for that protection. High yield, the high yield CDX is quoted as a price on the index itself, referring to basically an upfront percentage of the notional amount that you are forking over to buy that index. So for example, if the index is trading at 97, you're going to pay 97 cents on the dollar, right? (laughs) Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they're quoted that way, it actually means that the direction of buying and selling the index is reversed. So Mm. (laughs) you don't say, you know, again, you wouldn't just necessarily say buy high yield CDX, sell IG CDX. You would actually say buy protection on IG versus sell protection on high yield. Basically, don't try this trade your first day on the desk. No. You need to learn the quoting conventions for all of these different things because it would be too easy otherwise. And it's just another it's, level of jargon. Yeah. Um, but yeah. 
hopefully you understand my meaning when I say sell protection on high yield. It's implicitly a bullish position on the underlying high yield credit portfolio. And when I say buy protection on IG, it's implicitly a bearish position on the underlying investment grade credit. And so how do you make money? Well, if the high yield CDX goes up and investment grade doesn't move or investment grade goes down, I make money. Mm -hmm. If high yield doesn't move and investment grade goes down, I make money, Mm -hmm. right? If high yield goes up and investment grade goes down, you get the picture. Any one of those circumstances, I'm a goddamn hero, Mm -hmm. all right? But if investment grade outperforms high yield, I lose money. And that's how a relative value trade works. So hopefully you're now all on your way to becoming rock star credit traders. Um, (laughs) Or hopefully at the very least, you can extrapolate from this how relative value trades work kind of writ large. That is awesome. There's a lot of Yay. stuff I learned in there. So <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed the pumpkin spice latte relative value trade. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny how it's like, oh, I'll just buy the CDX on this. And it seems like such a simple thing. And it's like, oh, wait a second. It's been too long. I, I was not, no, I was not a credit specialist. So I was never right. doing that. Most of my clients were not even trading C- single name CDS. Most of my clients were, because again, I wasn't a credit specialist. I was a rate specialist. So macro players would trade IG and high yield all day mm. long. But they wouldn't be coming to me for that JP Morgan CDS. That's right. a credit specialist's job. Right. I remember because of the whole banks like <laughs> plummeting and everyone was buying the CDS on mm-hmm. the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs. Now they are those too big to fail banks. I would assume that the, the CDS, if there is any, would be like super low. Well, remember during the regional banking crisis of the spring, uh, CDS <gasps> blew out for all the banks. Even, um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I forgot about absolutely. that. Absolutely. So remember, if you're JP Morgan and you're you're the snake swallowing the alligator, I guess <laughs> it's more like the snake swallowing just like a very large mouse, I guess, for them to digest <laughs> First Republic. Mm-hmm. You know, that's going to have an impact. There was a lot more volatility in bank CDS in the spring when all that was going down. That's a good point. I forgot about that. Crazy. All right. So the second question that we got from our podcast with Harry is he was talking about essentially how in, and and by the way, like this is my plug for, if you haven't listened to that episode, like go back and listen to it. There was so much good stuff in there. But one of the things he was explaining is that he grew up as a quant, not trusting the model. So Jen asked the question, how do you separate signal from noise? And he said, yeah, for every 20 signals, 19 were garbage, and then you would have that diamond in the rough. And he was using as an example of the garbage that there was a bond, and we were talking about spreads and all that kind of fun stuff. There was a bond that had widened out. It seems like it was this fantastic buy because you would get like a, a super high rate. Much higher yield. Much higher yeah. yield. Sorry, much higher yield. But he's like, what the model didn't know is that there was this rumor that KKR was about to by the company. And that is what yielded that wider spread. And someone actually emailed us and asked, you know, whenever I hear about a company being bought, that sounds like a positive thing. So why would that mean that it's a bad idea to buy a company's bonds if, if the spread is widened out and they're about to be bought? Like that seems like a great thing. And so we think that this has so much kind of good stuff that gives us an opportunity to talk about like LBOs and all this kind of fun stuff. So who the hell is KKR to begin with? So they're just a private equity firm. And actually, they're a very large private equity firm. I'm assuming many of you guys have heard of them. And at their core, they started as that classic leverage buyout shop. Now, today, they have over $500 billion of assets under management. So they have more than just like the leverage buyout strategy. 
But when Harry was talking about it, it was from the context of you're assuming that KKR is buying whatever this company is and they're going to do a leverage buyout on them. Mm -hmm. So as a reminder, what is a leverage buyout? It's when you buy a company and you primarily fund it with debt. So you could have a company that's sitting there like, hell, it could be an investment grade company, low risk, low debt, you know, it's just chugging along. And here comes KKR and they're going to buy that company and pile so much debt on it that now it becomes a lot riskier. Mm-hmm. And guess what? If there's a rumor that KKR is going to buy them, the company's going to get risk- riskier. It makes sense that they should have a higher yield. Those, those bonds should have a higher yield because now it's inherently riskier to own them. And so investors right. need to be compensated for taking that risk. So here's the thing. When you have a leverage buyout, it is not always the case that you have KKR buy this company and now you have these bonds where investors are getting paid, call it like 2% when they should be getting paid like 10% or whatever the you know extra risk mm-hmm. premium they should get for that extra risk is. A lot of companies have covenants in place. They have what's called like these change of control provisions, which means that if a KKR does try to come buy this company, mm-hmm. all the debt that's outstanding oftentimes has to be paid back. That debt has to be refinanced. And you sometimes will even have what's called like a make hole because you're mm-hmm. buying these companies and the investors need to be compensated for the fact that they are now foregoing this extra lost interest. There is usually like a premium on top of it. Not a, not a huge premium. It's not going to be like a 25% premium like you'd see if you were to be an equity holder and KKR is buying the equity in the company, but you will have a slight premium. And so this is why knowing the specifics of those bonds, right? Like actually potentially looking at the loan docs or the the indentures Mm -hmm. is a good idea because if those bonds are going to have to get paid back, well, actually if the spread widened out, that's a great trade because not only did the spread widen out, but they're going to be repaid. It's great. Like you have, you're buying something, I call it 70 cents on the dollar and now it's going to par in no time at all. Mm -hmm. So knowing the specifics is important, but again, not all bonds are going to have that change of control provision. And so if you had this spread wide now, and there's this rumor of KKR coming in and buying the company, and now you bought the company and now it's riskier, that extra yield is maybe not rewarding you for that. If those bonds stick around and you now own them, they are going to start trading at an even higher yield, trading at a much steeper discount than they were already trading. Exactly. So you just lost money. You're going to lose money. Exactly. Exactly. So the main takeaway here, and this is also what Harry gets into, is that one of the things that a lot of these models are missing is like the intuition. And he was explaining it as the models are really good at knowing that if you say a bunch of words, the next word that's going to come is coffee. It doesn't understand a lot of like what coffee is and all that, but yeah, it knows what it is. Pumpkin spice latte. Right. Pumpkin spice latte. So that was, although today, now with AI, it's actually starting to understand stuff. But the main point was that that's why he said in the 19 data points, like there was a lot of garbage where the model didn't know, oh, KKR is a private equity firm. I'm going to lever this thing up. Doesn't know about the rumor. Now with AI, it's actually starting to know, oh, hey, if KKR is rumored to buy this, that's going to mean this, this, this. So with AI, it's actually starting to change. Um, yeah. It's a little scary. All right. So our last question. So we answered two questions that we got off of Harry's podcast. Now we're going to sidetrack a little bit and talk about a question that we actually got on TikTok, but that referenced some of the concepts that we talked about in our recent episode where we talked about how duration and convexity work. And this was specifically in uh, response to a video I did about a certain type of fixed income trade expression. So the question was, what causes the yield curve to flatten or invert? This is, again, a fixed income interest rates question. And let's back up and talk about what this person is actually asking. So first of all, what is what is the yield curve? Okay. 
The yield curve is sometimes called the term structure of interest rates. And all it is, is it's a, a visual graphical representation of the comparative yield to maturity of fixed income assets that are all otherwise identical in, in structure, in risk profile, et cetera, et cetera, except for their maturity. So if you think about it, the x-axis of this graph is time to maturity, and the y-axis is the yield of that asset, okay? And understanding the yield curve is pretty much the most basic, essential, fundamental thing to understanding everything. And I don't just mean like understanding trading bonds and all the stuff we talk about on this podcast, but it's everything from as simple as how much you earn on deposits at a bank, how much it costs you to buy a house or a car, and by the way, how much your favorite company's stock price is going to go up or down, whether or not we're going to be in a recession or a period of economic growth. It, it can even tell you how much more or less expensive it's going to be for you to travel abroad, things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is so fundamental to everything that literally drives our society and your ability to conduct your day-to-day life. So the yield curve is kind of the fundamental underlying secret to understanding the greater macroeconomic picture of the world. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so much that the yield curve relates to and impacts and is a reflection of. So why is that? Well, sorry, I want to just back up for one second. We talk about the yield curve flattening a lot in next week's episode. A good baseline of knowledge before we get into our next lecture (laughs) uh, after today's precept. But so, okay, so how do we build this yield curve? Well, we've talked before about the basic concept of the time value of money. Again, all else being equal, it costs more to borrow money for a longer period of time than a shorter one. All right. I've told that stupid joke before about like, what is interest? Well, if someone asks me to lend them money, I say like, how are you going to make it interesting for me? Right? Okay. You guys have heard me say that before. By the way, when he first said it to me, I didn't get the interest, interest ding uh, right away. Took me a yeah, little bit right. of time. So in right, case anyone well, so heard Jen say that in a prior episode and you didn't get that. You just bought yourself three more tellings of that joke. <laughs> um, so in a normal environment, right, I'm going to charge you more for you to borrow money from me for a longer period of time. So therefore, that yield curve, right, we think about our x-axis and our y-axis, as we get further out in maturity time, my yield curve should be upward sloping. But- There's more to the shape of this yield curve than just that time value of money theory. Implicitly baked into that upward sloping yield curve are also expectations for the future. A steep yield curve, like in a normal environment, typically signals expectations of higher interest rates in the future. And why is that? Well, we typically think about, all right, in the future, we're going to have stronger economic activity. In the future, we're going to have higher inflation. If you think about prices today versus prices in the 1920s, your grandparents' generation being like, it cost me 10 cents to buy my house. And Probably typically was. typically that stronger economic activity and higher inflation would lead the Federal Reserve to then raise rates down the line. For simplicity's sake, when talking about the yield curve as a whole, we break it up into three parts. We've got the front end, the belly, and the long end of the curve, okay? Because rates at different points in that curve are impacted by different factors. So when we're talking about the curve, we can be talking about different asset classes, but for today, we're going to talk about the U.S. Treasury yield curve. Front end rates, short-term borrowing rates for the U.S. government, are driven in large part by central bank policy. We've talked about the Federal Reserve before, right? The Federal Reserve sets its target rate range, and within that range, commercial banks can lend their excess reserve to one another in the overnight market. And actually just to like reinforce, Powell, everyone watches every time he speaks. It's like, is he going to raise rates again? And people are like watching him like a hawk. And I think everyone expected him to say, we're done at the last meeting. And he didn't say that. And so people are like, rah. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you were saying Powell right now hasn't really given us a very clear answer about what the path is. But right now, that Federal Reserve target rate range is set at 525 to 550. So 5.25 to 5.50%. So we have that baseline rate, okay, that's been set, that's been predefined by a governing body. And it gives us a starting point to now build out our yield curve. The Federal Reserve rate is effectively a risk-free overnight rate. But what about the rate for borrowing money for one month or one year? The U.S. Treasury issues what are called T-bills, which are short-term debt obligations. They also have cash management bills, all kinds of fun stuff. But anyways, if you buy a a one-month or a one-year T-bill, it's not like a regular bond where you pay par and you get a bunch of coupons over regular intervals and then you get your par back at maturity. Instead, you buy these at a discount because they're so short, there's not enough time for them to make you coupon payments. So you buy these at a discount, let's say 97 cents on the dollar. And then when the bond matures, you get back par and you get back all of that implied interest that you basically saved by buying that bond at a discount. You get that back at maturity. Fun and fact, so when- I bought a $1,000 T-bill and John, my husband was like, well, you now you have duration risk. I'm like, it's six months. It's like You do <laughs> have duration risk. He's I'm not like, wrong. I'm not going to Anything in six months. I'm not going to. You're holding it to. You're putting it in your maturity portfolio. Exactly. I don't think we need to worry about your mark to market exposure. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So when you think about what influences those short term rates, it's going to be really closely tied to that monetary policy, like the Fed funds rate. At the margin, it's also going to be driven by people like Kristen. It's going to be a function of how much people need to be compensated for tying up their cash on a short-term basis. What you're saying, Kristen, is why would I keep my cash in a checking account at a bank? or in a savings account, maybe earning less right Mm -hmm. now, because those short-term overnight rates are relatively high, I can park my money in a theoretically default risk-free investment that I'm going to get back all my money in six months. This is a great deal. Why wouldn't I? And so there's an implicit behavioral bias and supply and demand dynamic that's going to impact the level of these short-term rates. Think about it. When you deposit your money in a bank, how long are you planning to keep it there before you need to pay your bills or you want to spend it at Starbucks? Is there something else that you could buy that you could earn more on than your 5.5% annualized return in that one month? Or is a bank willing to... All of a sudden, if your bank, Kristen, said, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm willing to pay you 10% to keep your money here for a month, you'd say, okay, I'm out of this T-bill. I want to go back into my bank deposit, whatever it is. Other things to consider. Are we in a liquidity crisis? Are you like, I need cash now. I want to shove it all under my mattress because things are going to go bad in a hurry. My company is going to go under. Good news, our company is not making any money anyway, so it's not like we have to worry about that. Whatever it is. So all of those factors in either direction, those are going to really influence those short-term rates going up and down. As we start to get further out the curve, other factors are going to come into play. So the belly of the curve is really anything from two-year rates up to 10-year rates, depending on who you're talking to. It might be a little bit shorter. Those are going to be influenced by much more than current monetary policy and supply and demand for cash on hand today. We have to take into account a lot of other things like overall risk premia. So if I'm a macroeconomic investor and I'm deciding between investing in, say, equities like the S&P versus fixed income, which is talking about U.S. treasuries here, if things feel really bad in the economy, I might want to buy that safe stuff like U.S. treasuries. So I might engage in what's called a risk off trade, selling out of my equities and buying into fixed income. That kind of supply and demand dynamic is going to really impact the belly of the curve. We also have to think about asset managers who are people who are investing other people's money long term. 
cash that they don't need on hand in the really near term. They're going to be putting money to work there. And then on the other side of flows, we talked two weeks ago about convexity hedgers. Those are the guys who are going to be hedging their duration risk with points on the curve in the belly of the curve that correspond to the average life of the assets that they have on their balance sheet. Belly of the curve rates are going to be most closely tied to your mortgage rates, your car loans, your business loans, things like that. And then we've got the long end of the curve, which is like 10s on out, 30s, et cetera, et cetera. That's a little bit more rarefied in terms of who plays in the really long end of the curve. The pension guys and insurance companies, we talked about them in an episode a couple of weeks ago. They really dominate that space because they need to invest and shore up their asset liability mismatches. We also have guys who play in the exotic vol market, which is well beyond the scope of we get into here. And again, Long bonds are things that either you're investing in, you're putting that money away for a long term, or you're making a really big speculation on a very distant future economic picture. But so like we said at the beginning of this segment, in a normal environment, that yield curve should be upward sloping. Everyone should demand a higher risk premium to lend money for a longer time. Two-year rates should be higher than overnight rates. Five-year rates should be higher than two-year rates. Ten-year rates should be higher than five-year rates. And those really, really long-dated 30-year rates should be highest of all. Many market participants are going to trade the shape of that yield curve changing. It's constantly moving around. It's like a snake. It's constantly (laughs) undulating. It changes intraday all day long. And people will trade the shape of that curve. So just like we talked about a relative value trade, trading, for example, IG versus high yield, market participants are going to trade the shape of that curve in the form of a rate differential or spread between different points on the curve. So if, for example, I had the view that the Fed was going to cut rates tomorrow, we can generally assume that that's going to have a much bigger impact on short-term rates than on, say, 10-year rates. That's likely going to bring short-term rates down relative to belly and long-end rates. So I might put on a 210 steepener, where in this case, I would buy the two-year note and sell a duration-weighted amount of 10-year notes. And because I'm duration-weighting the trade, I don't care if the overall market goes up or down, but I make money if the spread between the two points on the curve widens. Sorry, what does duration weight mean? Yeah, think about it this way. We talked about this two episodes ago, that different points on the curve have different durations. So there's a different multiplier that I'm going to apply Mm. to each different point on the curve. So so the duration of a two-year note right now is about 1.8. So for every $100 million of two-year notes I buy, for every basis point that the market moves up or down, I'm going to make or lose $18,000. The duration of a 10-year note is about eight. So for every $100 million of 10-year notes that I buy or sell, for every basis point that the market moves up or down, I'm going to make or lose $80,000. Got it. So if the market moves up in parallel and Mm -hmm. I have tried to put on my steepener, and I have bought 100 million two-year notes, and I've sold 100 million 10-year notes, and the market sells off one basis point, I'm going to make $80,000 on my 10-year note selling off, and I'm going to lose $18,000 on my two-year note selling off. Mm-hmm. Got it. I don't want that risk. I only want risk when my curve steepens out or flattens. Interesting. Okay? So yeah. in order to execute that trade, just back of the envelope math, I'm going to need to buy something like 555 million two-year notes in order to get, say, 100K in 01 of exposure, Mm. meaning for every one basis point that my curve steepens or flattens, I'm going to make or lose $100,000. I would have to buy 555 million twos. I'm going to sell 125 million tens. 
in order to eliminate the differential caused by the two points on the curve having different duration. Okay, so we've duration weighted our trade so that we are, again, indifferent to any parallel shifts up and down in the market. We are only caring about making money if the difference between two points on the curve shifts. And again, for those of you who are not watching us on YouTube, (laughs) this is the classic airplane move that people explaining fixed income do all the time. It is like a prerequisite for explaining any kind of curve trades or curve shape steepening. You have to be like this. But anyways, if you can't see me, I'm waving my hands around like a crazy person. Okay. (laughs) Now remember, because I'm basing my trade off of the view that the Fed is going to cut rates, I'm anticipating that the way in which I'm going to make money on this trade isn't that 10-year notes are going to sell off and two-year notes stay the same, meaning it's not that yields are going to increase in the long end of the curve and the short end of the curve is going to be pegged. I'm actually saying that I think I'm going to make money because the short end of the curve is going to rally relative to the long end of the curve. So that's specifically called a bull steepener because the part of the curve that is leading the trade is rallying. And rallying just for people who can't see means that the interest rates are going down. Interest rates are going down. Yes, exactly. Conversely, a bear steepener is where I would be putting on that same trade, the exact same mechanics, but my belief is that the 10-year note is going to sell off, meaning its yield is going to increase more than the yield, the corresponding yield of that duration-weighted two-year note. Now, what our actual original question was is, <laughs> what does it mean when the curve flattens and or inverts? The curve can flatten, meaning we have our normally upward-shaped yield curve, right? But those differentials can shrink as that curve, as that big snake kind of undulates. Those differentials can shrink, and that's called a curve flattening. In extreme cases, the curve can invert, meaning that rates in the long end of the curve become actually lower than rates in the front end of the curve. And in fact, that is the economic environment in which we find ourselves today. Mm -hmm. All right? So knowing what we now know about the drivers of these rates, we have the tools to talk about what's responsible for the current inversion of the yield curve today, where two-year rates are in fact higher than 10-year rates. Just crazy. The general macroeconomic theory is that a flattening or an inverted yield curve is a harbinger of a recession. Some theorists are going to argue about causation versus correlation, but I think there's some stat. I don't know. I've got to, I I think I have it written down somewhere. I got to look it up. But basically the theory is that higher borrowing costs that are in place now because of monetary policy will eventually hurt the economy. They will reduce inflation and they will force the Fed to ease monetary policy and lower rates in the future. Basically, the yield curve is rates traders thinking they can see the future. (laughs) Inverted yield curves hurt the banking system. We've seen that play out. We've been talking again today about the recent regional banking crisis. Think about it. If you're a depository institution and you have to pay out high interest rates on short-term deposits, but you can only collect itty-bitty low rates on long-term loans like mortgages and business loans and student loans and all that fun things, you're not going to be making money. You're paying out a really high rate and you're collecting a really low rate. That's not a great way to do business. So the theory is that the flat curve or an inverted yield curve is the market's way of saying, hey, Fed, we think your attempts to fight inflation are going too far and having a negative impact on future growth. Oh yeah, so here's the stat. In the past 120 years, basically, of the 28 times that the 210's yield curve has inverted, 22 of those instances have been followed by a recession in the next six to 36 months. So that was 22 out of 28, you said? Yes. Wow. I read that stat on Reuters. So wow. think about it this way. Before, before the most recent yield curve inversion, 
The last time that the twos tens yield curve was inverted was in 2019. And guess what? The following year was 2020. <laughs> And we entered into a recession because of the pandemic. Now, okay, I just joked about so rates traders yeah. being able to see the future. Okay, yeah. like, you have <laughs> to be, be a conspiracy theorist <laughs> in order to say like, well, they clearly knew about the pandemic, okay? But like, mm-hmm. them's the facts. That's so, so funny. Let's look at where we are in the current monetary policy cycle now. The twos tens curve has been inverted since I think last July, if I'm wow. correct. And remember, the Fed's been in a hiking cycle that whole time in response to inflation readings having reached a 40-year high. We also had to navigate the debt ceiling crisis in June, which I know we've all forgotten about by now. It's been a whole (laughs) two months, but that's a big deal. Yeah. So recently, just as we were talking about with Powell, the Fed has been giving us mixed signals. Inflation readings have come off the highs. We're probably nearing the end of the rate hiking cycle that we've been in since 2022. Inflation expectations are coming down. And forecasts for economic growth and the overall health of companies has been faltering. So think about it. It seems to be playing out that we are likely looking at a recession in the near-term future, and we are likely looking at corrective monetary policy with an easing of monetary policy priced into – it's currently priced into the yield curve that we are going to have rate cuts in the next six to 18 months. So that's currently what the yield curve is telling us. It's Almost a way of saying, it's a way of the market saying the Fed's gone too far. It's a way of the market basically pricing in a policy mistake and a reversal. Right. So again, hopefully that answers the question of the wonderful NG on TikTok. We We love all of your questions. Yeah, Yeah, you ask great questions. I'm sorry I didn't give you the shout out before. So hopefully that explains a flattening or inverted yield curve. I know we covered a lot of other stuff. I just learned a lot. That was really interesting for me because it's well, funny how fun little, oh yeah. there's so much to it where we all hear about like Fed policy. We all hear all this stuff, but I think it's really interesting to then like bring it all back and understand, okay, how are people trading it? Oh, what is it? Like, why? I did the arms. I did the arms. Oh my gosh. My no, work is complete. It's really interesting to hear someone who actually lived and breathed this as a interest rate person dealing with investors who are utilizing it, also talking to the theory, but it's not just the academic. And I feel like we're talking about Harry so much, but he was talking about how, you know, he was an academic and he's like, I want to actually experience it. You have experienced this. I don't know any of the academics. I just have experience. (laughs) But no, I mean, it's fascinating. I love hearing how you explain it. I think you do such a great job. And um, anyway, so thank you for that. Was really this was fun, guys. Fascinating. This is a really fun little precept. Um, again, our lecture next week is going to be, <laughs> oh, hopefully next week. It might be two weeks out depending on our editing schedule. But coming up, we have an interview with Brian Weinstein, who is the head of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. He was my client for a long time at BlackRock. And he is just absolutely phenomenal. So if you guys enjoyed some of this stuff today, there's definitely going to be a deeper dive into some of these concepts with him. So this can be a good little reference podcast for you if you want to prep for yes. that that <laughs> mental gymnastics yes. work. We've got a couple of other great interviews coming up. And you guys are going to get some more just me and Kristen chat time. This was supposed to be a quick little interim episode. And here we are at a full hour. Thank you so much for letting us do this. So we will see you next time. And don't forget, if you have any questions, please send us an email at questions at Wall Street Skinny. And obviously you can contact us on social media. Thank you so much for listening to the Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at the Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to bond fundamentals 101. 
And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 